0: Our scripture this morning is from 2 Samuel 7, verse 1 through 16. That is on your Pew Bible, uh, page 259. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I've not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel? Am I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went, and I've cut off all your enemies from before you. And I'll make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I'll appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I'll give you rest from all your enemies." whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established
1: forever. This is the word of the Lord. I mean, I think it's fair to say that we just love stories in our culture that have big reveals and plot twists at the end of them. I mean, there's just something about finding out that Darth Vader is actually Luke Skywalker's father that just blows us away the first time we sees it. Or... When Jordan Peele, in Jordan Peele's Get Out, the main character Chris finds out that his in laws are actually transplanting the brains of wealthy white people into unsuspecting African American bodies. What? We can hardly believe our eyes when we see little Haley Joel Osment say that he sees dead people in the Sixth Sense, only to find out that Bruce Willis' character is also dead. We love those stories. But I always, it's always occurred to me that for Hollywood, most of the time, those stories are, are dark reveals, right? When something evil turns out to be like monstrously evil or something to that effect. But I've actually come to enjoy movies that have big reveals at the end that are shockingly joyful. In other words, there's something that, that moves us to tears at the end of it. We find it so particularly beautiful, Um, So at this moment, I'm about to do something rather dramatic and very decisively trade in my man card um, by revealing one of my favorite movies in this particular category. And yes, it's a Jane Austen movie. It's a Jane Austen movie called Sense and Sensibility. I love this movie and I'll tell you why. It's about a family of destitute sisters. And these male suitors who alone have the power to rescue them, not just from their station in life, but also from their aching loneliness. The oldest sister, played by Emma Thompson, has fallen deeply in love with Hugh Grant. Because who could could keep from doing that, right? Who wouldn't? But circumstances have made the relationship impossible, she thinks. And the drama of the movie is played out as she longs and she pines. She, She languishes under the pain of a love that she can't seem to have. But by the end of the movie, she firmly believes that Hugh Grant's character has married another woman. But while she's doing chores one particular day, he comes to visit her. And there, he reveals that indeed he did not marry the one that she thought he had. But he was there presenting himself to her as the only love of his life. Now look, Emma Thompson's portrayal of that reveal... And just this explosion of emotion that finally comes out of her when he confesses his love for her, it destroys me every single time, Ginger will tell you. Even she's a little weirded out by it, which is natural. It may surprise some of you that the Bible actually is fairly decent literature in that regard. That is, the Bible is an unfolding story where very dramatic and shocking reveals occur all the way through it. But the buildup, of course, is progressive, which means you get little parts of it along the way. So you find these passages in Scripture that unfold big reveals about what's to come. I mean, if you think about it, the, the whole stage was set in Genesis 1 through 11. We then find out that God calls a man named Abraham and sets him apart because he's going to save the whole world through Abraham's family. And the promise, of course, comes to us in a form that the Bible refers as a covenant. Later on, after that, the Jewish people would languish under Egyptian slavery for 400 years. God calls the great Moses to give him yet another aspect of the covenant, which involved this overwhelming detail about a, about a worship tent and the job of a particular priest and how they were to carry on their sacrifices. Well, The passage that we just read, though, this morning is the last big reveal in the plot of the Bible before you get to its climax, and it's God's revelation to King David about exactly where this story is going, and here's the deal. It's a doozy. One commentator said, this is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. In subsequent Israelite thinking, this chapter became a constitutional text like the Magna Carta or the Declaration of Independence, texts that inspire a whole people and engender a national identity. So this morning I want to unpack the content of this massive reveal in Scripture, God's covenant with David. And what I think you're going to find is there are few scenes in the life of David that get closer to the heart of God's intention for how he's going to bring about his salvation to the whole world. And like Emma Thompson's character in Sense and Sensibility, I think you'll find that the more you dig into this, the more that it explodes in joy in our hearts. That's the hope anyway. So three points this morning. First of all, a provision from God, not for God. Secondly, a house for David, not for God. And then thirdly, an eternal line, not a temporary one. Let's take that first one first. The the setting of this big reveal is interesting, isn't it? Because David has found a way to get rest from his enemies at last. Perhaps he's up in his particular tower uh, near the castle, near uh, near his uh, dwelling place. And he looks down and he can see the tabernacle. And from his perspective, it looks a bit drab. He feels burdened by it. The contrast between the way he lives and the way in which the tabernacle is pricks his conscience. So he calls a prophet. Apparently, as we learned the last two weeks, he's learned the hard way that you need to go ask God first before you launch in with your great idea. But he gets the green light to do it, right? But the prophet comes back with a slight bit of correction. In verse 5, you get the essence of his response. It says this, Thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? The key words there are you and me. Because God is saying, look, I have never needed a house. I've never asked you for a house. Look, David, kings are the ones who live in palaces. I dwell among my people. And then in verse 80, he says, look, you know what? Come to David, come to think of it, David, I'm the one who took you from the pasture and made you a prince in, in Israel. Pause there for a moment. I think it's very interesting that God uses the word for prince instead of the word for king. It's almost as if God is saying, "David, I am the only real king in Israel. You serve and have served at my pleasure, not the other way around. I am the one who gave you rest from your enemies. I am the one who has made and will make your name great." So, thanks for the gesture and all but if this temple construction is in any way motivated by some sense of need that you feel I have on my part for you to put me in a better place than I already am, yeah, don't bother. It's really interesting. This lesson from, for David actually gets repeated a lot in Israeli history. When David's son Solomon finally finishes the temple, he mentions in 1 Kings 8, verse 27, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that have I built. They figured this lesson out. So much so that even in the New Testament, in the book of Acts chapter 17, when Paul is preaching to Athens, to the, uh, the men of Athens, he says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Reminded me of another movie quote. We have an all-movie quote sermon this morning, so bear with me. One of my favorite movies from the football movie, Rudy. Remember this story? It's a great football movie. Rudy goes to visit an old priest to ask for advice about his uh, football career. And so he goes and talks to old Father Kavanaugh, who looks at him and says this. He says, look, son, in 35 years of religious study, I've come up with only two hard, incontrovertible facts, There is a God, and I am not him. So you see, this idea was going to be firmly planted in the psyche of God's people. I am God, and you are not. And the question for us this morning, though, before we move to the second point is, why would God see that as being something that would be important? Why? Well, the reason is because we have all these examples in ancient Near Eastern cultures who performed their religious observances for their deities or even constructed great edifices on their behalf in the hopes of maintaining their right relationship with him. In other words, there were hoops that you had to jump through. And if you did, you could still be on God's good side. But God is looking at David and saying, but David, I'm not like the gods around you. The relationship that I'm going for is going to be one that is founded in and rooted in grace. And grace alone. Led J.D. Greer to say one time, he said, God flips David's script. Look at the passage and see who the actor is. David isn't in the driver's seat. God is. David was concerned about God's house and wanted to build him a new one. Like many of us today, he thought of God as a cause in need of supporters and financial backers. He was going to give and give big, but God won't have it. I am the giver, God declares, and you are the receiver. I am never the debtor, but you will always be indebted to me. You know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago about how much spiritual slavery it is to have a God that looks like that. Because on the one hand, you're going to be either proud or arrogant, depending on how whether you're living up to your standards, or you're going to be crushed and dejected when you fail, as you absolutely will. And so it's as if God is coming to David saying, I am putting this covenant on entirely different grounds. It will be because of my initiation, my advances towards you, my mercy on your behalf that you will ever rejoice over knowing me. It's going to be on me and I kind of hope it goes without saying that for millennia Christians throughout the ages have gotten pretty excited about this for really no other reason than the fact that it means that a love that will not let me go as we sing is actually possible I mean think about it if I contribute one molecule of merit to my relationship with God then I still possess the power to mess it up and that's not the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. That's what he's trying to stress to David. So that leads me to the second point, And that is that there is a house for, for David, not for God. Did you catch the play on words there in verse 5? <laughs> you know, God says, look, I know you want to build me a house, but actually I'm going to build you a house. In other words, temple construction, David, that's not even going to fall to you. That's going to be for your children to take care of. Hey, but by the way, speaking of your children... I'm going to provide a dynasty for you. That is, I'm going to create a whole lineage of descendants that will sit on the throne forever. Now look, at this point, this is when your Bible bell should be going off because God is just making a major hyperlink with another portion of Scripture that we've actually already studied. If you remember back last fall when we looked to the the book of Genesis, we saw the story of Abraham where God first talks about this covenant And one of the promises that he makes there goes like this. He says, For all the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. So now what God is saying is, is he's getting explicit. Hey, David, do you remember that promise that I gave to your forefather Abraham? You remember that? That's how long I've been at work on this. But today... I'm ready to get more specific. And I want you to know that the line of salvation is going to come straight out of your body. That is, your children's children are going to see what it is that I have been up to all this time when we finally get there. So what you get is this magnificent description of the covenant with David, the Davidic covenant that God forges. And of all the things that we can see and say, exploded in David's heart with joy, I think you can understand that this covenant came to him as one that is flawless. That's the descriptor I want to use for it. It is a flawless covenant. One commentator said, that is the primary mark of Yahweh's promise. It will endure any and all casualties that might threaten it. As Yahweh states the promise, he seems to be staring down every conceivable adversary. What does he mean? Well, think about it. God's promise to David is flawless because, first of all, even death can't annul it. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. So, even if David dies before he sees its fulfillment, it does not mean that God has forgotten his promise. Hold that thought. Late April, early May, or so, that's going to become really important that you remember that when the story of the, of the end of David's life unfolds. But not only can death not annul it, but secondly, even sin can't destroy it. Look at verse 14, the second half. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of, sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before me. Oh, man. It means that not even David's failures, morally speaking, can nullify this covenant. In other words, God is going to take all of David's failures and he's going to turn them into opportunities for discipline, not as an option to reject him, which of course is the great fear, is it not? In the midst of spiritual failure, maybe this last one is the one that's pushed me out of God's favor at last. So not only can death not annul it and sin can't destroy, but thirdly, time cannot exhaust it. Look at verse 16. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. I want to mention this again on the last point, but suffice to say that God is unfolding for David a plan for worldwide salvation that is impervious to human spoiling. In other words, if it's a salvation that is conceived in grace and executed in mercy, then those who are in covenant with this God are safe as kittens. That's the big reveal. That here in my kingship that I am establishing through you, David, you'll have true security, ultimate safety. Of course, as if to drive at home, he uses this very familiar word picture. Look at verse 14, because this is kind of the hinge of the whole reveal. He says, I will be to him, that is the descendant of David, a father, and he shall be to me a son. Now hold on for a second. This is wonderful, but you kind of got to put it together. If you go back to Exodus, especially in chapter 4, that is the one other time in which God refers to someone as being his son. And who's he speaking about in Exodus chapter 4? He's talking about the whole of the children of Israel. He speaks of them as his child. They are my son. But now, that same language is being applied to David as an individual, as the king. So what does that mean? That means that David now is going to represent his people. David is going to be a stand-in, as it were, for God's favor throughout the whole nation. Don't let that throw you because in that culture, almost all of your personal welfare, whether it was economic or, or, or spiritual or certainly military, it all depended on your king. Your life was wrapped up in the goodness or the badness of the king, which is probably one of the reasons why the life expectancy of so many kings was so short. But The point is, is that the actions of the king determine the fate of the nation. starting to sound familiar to anybody. One commentator said, but at one key moment, the obedience of David's greatest son, the Lord Jesus, will save God's people. As our representative, his righteousness becomes our righteousness. Where did they get that idea? Where did the Apostle Paul get this idea in the book of Romans? It all came here in the Davidic Covenant. Look, y'all, this is the center of the center because this is the big reveal that will explode in joy if you'll just live in it for a little while. Reminds me of that scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe when little Lucy and Susan turn around and they finally see Aslan, and he's alive. After seeing him killed, he's alive again. And so they rush to him. Susan even asks if he's a ghost. But he alleviates their fears with his warm breath. And then to answer his question, he explains, yes, the witch was right. The deep magic that had been decreed that all traitors' lives were forfeit to her. But you know what? She missed something. I'll I'll let Aslan say it for himself. He says it means, though, that the witch knew the deep magic. There is a deeper magic still, which she did not know. Her knowledge goes only back to the dawn of time. But if she could have looked a little farther back, Into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. Look, you see, what Lewis is getting at here through the character of Aslan is almost exactly what Jesus would say in his earthly ministry in John 15, 13, when he would say, greater love has no one than this, that if someone should lay down their life for their friends. In other words, there is no affection, Jesus is saying, that you can be the recipient of that is greater than the lavished love of someone who dies on your behalf. Jesus is saying, that's as good as it gets. And because that's as good as it is, and because that is overwhelming as it is, it's unbelievably transformational as well. Nothing changes you quite like this. Again, I'm, I'm, Avengers Endgame, I will stop quoting when it stops producing illustrations. It's just the way it works. But at the very end, Tony Stark, Iron Man himself, at his funeral, his widow makes a wreath to float out onto the water behind their house. And in the middle of the wreath, she places the power source that Tony would wear over his heart from the very beginning of the whole saga with a caption wrapped around it that reads, proof that Tony Stark has a heart. And the last time that I was watching that, it suddenly, the wordplay kind of struck me. Yes, Tony's power source had now gone out. He died. But because he died, because he gave his life for the rest of his friends, you can know that he has a heart he's healed. He's not selfish. He's giving. He's become good. And all of a sudden it just washed over me. This is the message of the covenant. This is the message. Because Jesus shows up and all anybody can say about him is that he is great David's greater son. In Luke one thirty one, the angel says to Mary, And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. What's the angel saying? The angel's rehearsing the Davidic Covenant. And so Jesus rises, he grows up, and with his father's affirmation of his baptism, he launches into a ministry that has, as its inevitable conclusion, the giving of his life for the sins of his people. And so what that means is, is that you and I, because he is the king of the universe, we can know that Jesus has a heart. And not just a heart for justice, or a heart for mercy, or a heart for truth, as true as all that is, What we can know is that Jesus has a heart for you and for me. Jesus' death shows that he would go to any lengths to make sure that the covenant that he's forging cannot be messed up even by you and I's foolishness. That's the security. And here's the deal, y'all. Once that breaks... (laughs) Once that hits you, it explodes in joy. You want to know what the greatest fixation of the Psalms is? I've been living in the Psalms for the last few months, not sure why. David is preoccupied with something that if you use the ESV translation, it'll come up as unfailing love. And here's the deal. You don't need to know any Hebrew to understand the Bible, but you need to know the Hebrew word behind that word. It's the Hebrew word hesed. If for no other reason, how many times it gets repeated. It was in one of our recitations this morning. Over and over and over again, David talks about this unfailing love, this hesed. I mean, there's all kinds of different kinds of love, right? There's romantic love. There's friendship love. There's, I don't know, there's a love of food. There's sexual love, whatever. But David over and over again talks about hesed. What is that kind of love? What is that? very simply it's the love that will not let me go hesed love is loyal love hesed love is committed love hesed love is the covenant love that transcends my circumstances it's the love that's not that's not sort of hinged upon my fickle heart it's certainly not hinged upon god's fickle heart because he's the one who shows his people his unfailing love we are the recipients of that hesed and David over and over, he can't stop talking about it. It's almost in every psalm he wrote. Your hesed is what wakes me up in the morning and gives me confidence. Your hesed calms my fears in the evening. He bookends his entire day swimming in this idea that one day God is going to give up his life. And show that there is no greater love that you could possibly have. You could not be safer if I love you in that way. That brings me to the last and extremely brief, simple point, and that is that God is establishing an eternal line, not a temporary one. Again, the interesting thing about that Avengers scene is Tony Stark dies, right? And the MCU sorely misses him, as they do. But after Jesus died, he rose again. Easter's coming, y'all. Which means that whatever he did is never going to end. Jesus, when he arrived, came to announce a worldwide kingdom of God that was spreading, the influence of which, as more and more people he would draw into his fold, would create a complete and utter universal healing. And the reason why it will be a healing is because of the status that he grants to his people. One last thing, Revelation chapter 22. This is the way it all ends, people. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of that tree were for the healing of the nations. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And you ready for this kicker? And they will reign forever and ever. They will reign. We, you and I. In other words, this king is so unselfish in his kingship that he is elected to draw you and I into his authority that we will reign as co-heirs with Christ of all that his Father is going to pour out on him. That's the amount of love. That's the hesed. That's what will never fail. That's the love that will not let me go. And once you get it, you're a little like Emma Thompson at the end of Sense and Sensibility. It explodes in you with joy. It really does make me wonder. I, I... get this question a lot as a pastor. Oh, heaven. What's heaven going to be like? I don't know. Maybe this is, this is one for the young people. It's almost as if we've been walking around with VR headsets on that give us a whole different version of reality. But all of a sudden at our death, that, that mask gets removed and we suddenly see that the rock that God has set us upon is more solid than anything else could ever be and it's wider than it could ever be and that we've never been safer. But oh, how we fret. <laughs> Oh, how we panic. Oh, how we fear. How we wring our hands over our next circumstances. God is in his heaven simply showing his love over the cross. (laughs) Head to the cross because that's where I am. That's what my kingship means. And his invitation to us is to come and reign with him. Could there be anything bigger than that? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, even if none of this was true, it would still be an amazing story. But the fact that it's coming from your word means that it is true. And that that means everything to us. It means that you can draw us very sweetly in. That even, Father, as we sing this closing hymn, we can maybe get a a small shaft of the light coming from that realization that would pierce through our fears, our, our boredom, our recalcitrance. Father, all the things that keep us from you. Maybe our sin maybe even wickedness. Father, if you would send a shaft of your unfailing love, your hesed into our hearts that we we could know and see what David saw. We would leave here not the same, but we need you to do it for us. Would you do that? For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen.